Hey, podcast listeners, Andrew here. Welcome to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast. I'm doing a special intro here just because we have a couple special episodes coming up for you. Uh, many of our listeners will be aware that Pastor Brady recently released his new book, Remarkable, hit the bookshelves last week. And we're just so excited about it. The book really is the culmination of uh, a great deal of thinking and praying and wrestling and a ministry career. So this, in many ways, is like kind of a manifesto for him, which he gets to in the episode. The reason I'm giving you a special intro here is just to let you know uh, that you need to go out and buy the book. I mean, this is some of his most important principles and teachings about what it means to be the church. So you ought to go get it. Uh, try to grab it on Amazon if you can. And if you do get it on Amazon... Leave a good review. It really helps um, increase the visibility of the book and gets it out there to more people. So without further ado, I want to take you to this conversation, uh, part one of two that we had with Pastor Brady on his new book, Remarkable. Welcome to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I'm your host, Andrew Arndt, joined today by Pastor Brady Boyd. Daniel Grothy and Glenn Packiam. Pastor Brady, your book is out. Yeah. And we're all very excited about it. So the book, for those of our listeners that haven't heard yet, is Remarkable, Living a Faith Worth Talking About. So we want to spend some time today on the podcast and next week as well, talking about this book and the burden behind it and the content in it. So Brady, I'll just start here today. Tell us about the book. Tell us the burden behind it and where it came from, what motivated you to write this specific book. Well, if any of you have written books, you know it, it, it happens over a long period of time. I was thinking today that this book actually birthed in me of like 18 months ago. Hmm. So literally, I was sitting down eight, a year and a half ago outlining some thoughts, and today it's turned into a book. So this is quite the journey when you write something, especially with a traditional publisher, which makes you go through four or five excruciating processes to get the content just right. Yeah. And, and so I'm living in this very vulnerable moment right now where <laughs> I have spent 18 months on a project. Every word mattered to me. Every thought mattered to me. Uh, almost every one of my days off the last year and a half, I have mm. spent editing, writing, thinking, looking through content, mm -hmm. uh, reading books. There's probably read 25 or 30 books in preparation for writing this one. So I'm living in this very vulnerable moment that every author knows that you put this content out now yeah, and it's out there for the public realm for Amazing. people to make snap judgments about. Yeah. So here's what I'm asking everyone. Be gentle. <laughs> be nice. I want you, I want you to, if you read the book and you love it, go to Amazon, make a great, yes. give a great review. But if you don't like it, just kind of keep that to your <laughs> Brady, but, uh, So no. Brady, I'll just kind of say, I've read your other books and I've loved your other books. Great content, very pastoral and wise. This one felt different to me. Yeah. This one felt like this is is kind of the culmination of a career's worth of pastoring. And there were some things that you needed to say to the church. So talk us into what Remarkable really is all about. Well, it, was, it is a bit of a manifesto. Thank you for saying that. I, I meant for this book to be more serious in content and weightiness. I, I believe the church is at a pivotal point right now where we have to decide who we're going to become. Yeah. And the culture is waiting for the church to become the church. And we've been everything but the church in some cases. I believe that this is a moment that the American church has to have serious self-evaluation about what we're saying, what we're doing, uh, the personality that we're willing to take on. Uh, and I believe this this book is, is a way, if nothing else, to recenter our church, yeah. our congregation, to recenter us on the, the primary teachings of Jesus. Paul yes. had the same challenge when he went into Corinth, where he found about 40 to 60 people hunkered down, trying to do the best they could to live out the teachings of Christ in a town of about a million people, 
that was completely sexualized, completely yeah. consumed with entertainment and violence and a grasping for power and cheap money. Mm-hmm. And when I begin to study the city of Corinth, it looks a lot like our culture today, except worse. Yeah, We think that America might be at its all-time worst. Corinth makes America look like downtown Disney right yeah. now. <laughs> Corinth was a mess. And yeah. there was so there was this group of people uh, trying to say yes to Jesus, but they were being uh, completely consumed by a toxic, sinful culture. Yeah. So when Paul arrived to these precious people, he said, listen, don't give up. Don't give up on the on the teachings of Jesus. If you will live out these teachings of Jesus, you will be a witness in a culture that is so desperate for truth right now. And I think this is the moment where churches around the world, we have to decide, are we going to oppose the culture or are we going to influence the culture? And I believe that we we have to even reevaluate how we're influencing yes. the culture. Yeah. It's good. And it starts with our own decisions to mm-hmm. live out the teachings of Jesus mm-hmm. in a remarkable way. What I love about what you've done in this book, Brady, is instead of uh, you know using just cultural trends as the starting point and then trying to sort of forecast to the future, and there's a lot of books that do that, you know, sort of futuristic thinking, oh, I think this is, I predict the end of this kind of church and the mm-hmm. end of this kind of Christian. And those books are fine. Sometimes they're based on data, sometimes they're not at all. But what I love about your approach is you went back. You went back to another era, sort of the the pre-Constantinian era, you know, before there was Christendom, before it was Christian culture. You went back to the first generation of Christians and said, what did they do that we've lost? What can we recover? And early in the book, you outlined three approaches that you've seen Christians today kind of take, and then you kind of look backwards to Paul in Corinth and propose a fourth way. T- talk to us about those models. You know, uh, thank you uh, for those kind words. I, I, I do. I am fascinated by the early church, like a lot of people uh, are fascinated. And you know, think about the people in Corinth. They did not have any political power to change mm-hmm. any of the laws. They were mm-hmm. dominated by Romans. Uh, they were still under oppression. Yeah. So the early church didn't have. They didn't have elections to <laughs> change anything. They right. didn't have that as an option. No. They certainly didn't have economic power nope. to change the culture. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have political power. They didn't mm-hmm. have economic power, mm-hmm. and they certainly didn't have any other kind of influence. Right. So they were. Yeah. They were. They were stuck on the margins of the culture. Mm. They were pushed to the very outer margins. Mm. And I believe that the church is at its best when it's been pushed to the margins of the culture, actually. It becomes its truest self when we're pushed to the margins of the culture. So as you look across the last 2,000 years, and these are three words that I came up with, and I'm not the only one. Lots of scholars, lots of thinkers have come up with different words to describe how the church has responded to outside pressures that come upon the church. I came up with these three words, and these are three things that the church has done in the last 2,000 years, which I think are wrong. Mm-hmm. The first way is they've, they've isolated themselves. Mm. Uh, they've chosen to create these alternative communities yeah. where they go out and try Retreat. to live out the teachings yep. of Jesus in a way that we're going we're gonna to barricade ourselves, yeah. put, put spiritual and physical walls, in some cases, around our community to keep ourselves from the evil ones, the dogs on the right. outside, right. the evil mm-hmm. ones, the pers- the, the wicked. The does, wicked. Yeah. We have to, we're the holy ones. Let's keep ourselves holy by keeping ourselves isolated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem with that is that Jesus told us to be salt and light. <laughs> right. he, he said we were a city on a hill and yeah. that we, our light should not be hidden, yeah. that we should go into all the world and make disciples, not into our own world, but to the world. Mm-hmm. And so there's a huge problem theologically with that approach. But yeah. however, I can understand mm-hmm. that when people are under deep persecution, why the tendency is to respond that sure. way. Yeah. You know, protect my kids, protect my home, protect uh, the purity of our belief system. Mm-hmm. We need to isolate ourselves from a really toxic world. I understand mm-hmm. 
It's just not mm-hmm. the appropriate way. Mm-hmm. There are other options. Another option is the exact opposite, and that is to just immerse yourself into the culture. And mm-hmm. really, over time, there's not much that looks different from your life mm-hmm. than the life of those around you. And let me just say this: uh, I'm not being, I'm not trying to be a mean spirited about this, but most Christians fall into this culture, mm-hmm. this 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 category. Mm-hmm. They're just not much different than their mm-hmm. lives and their neighbors who are unbelieving. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just their marriage looks about the same. They're, yeah their vocabulary, the way they're taking care of their money and the way they're living in community, the way they're loving each other, it's just not much different than the world around them. Jesus they learn to go along and get along. Yeah. Jesus is Lord of the afterlife, but for this life, they can do whatever they want. I've got yeah. my ticket to heaven. Yeah. 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 Nothing yeah. else matters. I'm going to heaven. This earth is all going to burn and go away. <laughs> I mean, Make the best the... choices you can for your own comfort yeah. and pleasure. Yeah. The salt yeah. has lost its saltiness. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and and so I believe that we, we're probably living, in, in my opinion, the American church is living in a greater place of compromise today than probably yeah. any other time in yeah. history. That sort of cuts both ways, too. I think in the conservative church and the liberal, liberal church yeah. or progressive yeah. church, yeah. I think that we have ways of doing that. We just sort of picked our things. <laughs> yeah, so the church looks more like the world than yeah. the world looks like the church, yeah. and that's a problem. All right, then the, the third option is the angry option, in my opinion, the <laughs> instigators, the those who believe that they can shout at the darkness and make it go away, that they, mm. they, they're grasping for a power that they once had. It's, it's, it's like sand sifting through their fingers. Mm. They don't know how to keep hold of the cultural, political power that they once had. They see the world all around them shifting and changing, and they don't know how to make sense of this changing world. Mm-hmm. Where, where America used to be a primarily Christian nation, it's not anymore. Mm. And we have to realize we're not going back to Mayberry. Right. We're not. We're not coming back to that. We have. Uh, I was with a really significant leader that all of you would know, and for the privacy of our conversation, I won't tell you his name. But he said, Brady. He said he was just in a, like a private meeting with twenty or thirty thought leaders, and he said the collective wisdom in the room said we have completely lost a cultural war. Mm. that we probably should have never fought in the first place. <laughs> it's over. Yeah. We have to declare it's over. Right. And we have to learn to live in a better way or we're going to really lose wow. our witness over time if we mm. haven't already. Mm-hmm. And I love what you say in the book though even pointing out like okay so which which era are you hearkening back to the 50s when there was segregation and and black people had to drink different right. water fountains, you know. So there's also this myth of what right. the previous era of quote-unquote Christianized America looked like. Well, yeah, yeah I've heard it's more my, nostalgia. I mean, I've had people tell me, why can't we? I, mean, I remember the America of the 50s. Yeah. <laughs> well, I remember. Yeah. That's yeah. also voting rights. Different right. sins. Right. Yeah. Women didn't have yeah. rights in the workplace. Yeah. Uh, black people were drinking out of water fountains. Right. Immigrants were treated like cattle out in California. I mean, what are we talking about yeah. here? Yeah. Yeah. And we always hearken back to the good old days when, if we were really honest, yeah. they weren't as good as we think. No, they weren't. Mm. Uh, Brady, I want to ask you this question, uh, just on your point about the instigators here, one of the pieces of your book that really caught my attention, I'm going to quote you back to yourself here and then ask you a question, but you said that with instigators, I found that it matters less who is the enemy than that there is a shared enemy Mm. to unite against. And then you make this statement, and I think that people are going to be really provoked by this, and I think in a healthy way. You say that, um, that when you're motivated by anger and rage, which is what the instigators often are, you eventually resort to employ the same tactics in your effort to bring about change that the other side is using to keep that change from occurring. Shame, embarrassment, vitriol, humiliation, and guilt. 
The kingdom of God isn't ushered in by vitriol or guilt. It's ushered in solely by love. Mm. I just thought that was profound. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? I think the most revolutionary, radical thing we can do right now is love our neighbors, mm. ourselves, mm-hmm. and and not just the neighbors who vote like us or look like us, have the same skin color of mm-hmm. us. That's the most radical thing that Christianity has always brought to the mm-hmm. world, the radical idea that you can love your enemies, yeah. that you can speak grace over those who oppose you. That has always been yep. the catalyst to change in every culture where Christians refused to get into the tribal battles, yes. yeah. where we where we separated ourselves and said, wait, 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 our enemies are people. These yes. are human beings. Human beings are the crowning achievement of God's creation. We can't mm-hmm. hate them. Yeah. We can't despise them. Yeah. We must love them. And I know that's hard, uh, uh, especially when those people are espousing doctrines that sure. are so evil sure. in some cases. Sure. But that you know, Jesus used to really uh, confound uh, the religious leaders of his day by hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. He did. He did. They could not understand why Jesus would waste his time with these people, those yeah. people, the despised yeah. ones, the rejected ones. Yeah. And yet Jesus crossed over some massive social barriers. He allowed women to be in his presence. He mm-hmm. spoke to women, the woman mm-hmm. at the well that mm-hmm. he spoke to. How dare him speak to a woman in public? How dare him sit down with a tax collector and have a meal? Um, how dare him look at a woman who was caught in adultery and tell her and go and sin no more? I mean, Jesus showed us this radical expression of grace and love toward those who are different than us. And never turn people into enemies. I mean, I think about even when he's hanging on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So Paul's comment about, you know, uh, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. If it has flesh and blood, mm-hmm. it's not your enemy. And I feel like that's what you're calling us to in this book, is to see humanity. I am determined to lead a church that's not consumed by tribalism. Yeah. And we are living in a tribal culture right now that if you believe differently than me, then you are evil and you must be defeated, humiliated, embarrassed, and exposed of, mm-hmm. and, and, and disposed of. Mm. And I'm telling you, that has probably caused us to lose our evangelistic fervor more than anything in the last 20 years of the American church. We care more about political partisanship than we care about discipleship. And I am am determined to stand as a prophetic voice in front of my own church who's full of conservative voters, and I'm a conservative voter primarily, but I am determined to speak to our church in a way that compels us to get out of our tribal mindsets and to once again embrace the Great Commission. Yeah. Yeah. But we can't be Great Commission people if we're not Great Commandment people. Right. The Great Commandment preceded the Great Commission, mm-hmm. and Jesus never expected us to go into the world and make disciples if we don't love the people we're going to. Well, right. So he gave us the Great Commandment first. Yeah. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And therefore, if that's true, Go into all the world and make disciples. Yeah. Very good. Brady, you see, even in 1 Corinthians 11, looking at this document that Paul wrote to them, how they were using the table of the Lord as a way of separating the rich from the poor, the people who had uh, the benefits, the people who didn't. And Paul rebukes them and teaches them at the table of the Lord, this is where the playing field is leveled. So how do you think the church in, in the weekly worship gathering can announce to the world a different kind of kingdom? I think what's beautiful about the church is that every Sunday, black, white, brown people, men, women, rich mm. and poor, young and old, gather, and we sing the same songs, we recite the same creeds, and we come to the same table. Mm. There's no other institution in the world right now showing that kind of unity, yeah. where we're all singing the same songs, 
where we're all praying the same prayers and reciting the same creeds, and we're all coming sharing from the Lord's table. It is a pronouncement yeah. of Re- Revelation 7. Every tongue, mm-hmm. tribe, and nation gathered together. We don't have to give up our distinctiveness right. in order to be the church. Right. We can be ourselves. We can embrace our our di- our differences yep. while coming to this place of unity. That's mm-hmm. the church's yep. role. Yes. We're, there's a, we're the worshipers of the triune God who is one and yet three. And so in our worship community, in our corporate life together, we can be that. Like we're capable, we have that unity that's capable of encompassing difference. I feel like that's what you're saying so much in your book. Yes, thank you. Yeah. So, okay, so you've named the the other three and you've definitely described the fourth way, but just spell it out for our listeners. What is the fourth way? The fourth way is to be consumed with love for God and love for people Mm -hmm. and let that be your motivation for everything you do. Mm -hmm. It is... It's more than just a cliche. It's not a bumper sticker. It's not, it's not just a little nice uh, Christian saying. Mm-hmm. Jesus meant for the great commandment to go deep into our soul and transform us from the inside out. Mm-hmm. If you're not madly in love with a person of Christ, then you'll mm-hmm. never be madly in love with the people he created. Mm-hmm. And if you'll, But if you love God, if you're truly, truly in favor of finding God, knowing Christ, mm-hmm. letting his nature become your nature— the outflow of that is going to be community and hospitality yes. and grace and yes. kindness to the people around you. Mm-hmm. The same grace that's been given to us has to be given away. Yes. And that's the nature mm-hmm. of the gospel. You can't give away what you've not received. Mm-hmm. And once you have received this divine grace, once you realize how deeply you are forgiven, you can't help but forgive other mm-hmm. people around yeah. you. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the kind of people I want to live around for the remaining years of my life. I just want to be around people that love God and out of the overflow of that are just kind to one another mm-hmm. and inviting and there's hospitality yeah. and there's there's uh, an awareness of the broken people around you um, and and there's an, an attention to the cry of the poor in your city and there's there's deep friendships that are rooted in something more than just what I can get from you yeah uh, so that's what I'm hoping for. I think one of the things that when you're saying this one of the things I do love about this book is that we're living in a time of church growth strategy. Mm-hmm. And this isn't really a church growth strategy, is it? This is about reclaiming our identity and trusting that the Holy Spirit is capable of growing the church through that. Is that accurate? Hopefully it's going to grow people. And I think the best church growth strategy is to grow people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you're not growing people, then you're building something on sand anyway, that the first storm that comes into your church is going to be swept away. Mm -hmm. But if you'll build on this rock that is Christ, then no gates of hell. The gates of hell will not prevail. So good. You say, you know, you say loving God, loving neighbor, and so many people do uh, turn that into sort of this bumper sticker slogan, you know, uh, this sort of, uh, this is all that life is about, just love God, love people. But what I love about the book is you then spell out the implications of this, and you say, okay, this is what it means for your marriage, this is what it means for sexuality, this is what it means for racial reconciliation and money and all of this stuff, and that's exactly what Paul's doing, isn't it? Because he doesn't just leave it to the Corinthians and say, hey guys, love Jesus, love one another, the end, you know? He says, no, the Holy Spirit's teaching us to discern then how we should live, how we should live worthy of our calling. And what you're doing in this book is you're outlining places that will at times kind of affirm what we want, like like to say to us, yeah, we should have a kind of generous hospitality. Everybody sort of wants that. But there are other places where you're going to push against and challenge and to say, listen, guys, loving God and loving neighbor may actually confront some of our instincts as human beings and as, you know... Well, if you, lo- if you love people, if you love the single mom, you're not going to let her stay on the streets homeless. Yeah. If you love uh, your black neighbor, you're not yeah. going to let uh, laws to, that are unjust toward them stand. That's if good. you love your neighbor, you're not going to let poor people uh, be marginalized by the economy. Mm-hmm. 
you're going to step into those spaces when needed out of love and defend them and speak up for them and give your money appropriately toward those causes. So love turns into action. Yeah. Yeah. And love without feet is not the church. Love with feet is the church. Brady, I think this book is kind of a culmination, like Andrew was saying, of a life message that you've been living and watching develop in front of you. So I I think back to the young Brady boy, the little boy running around Louisiana and the small churches. And tell me, who are some of the remarkable people you've watched that made an imprint on your soul, on your imagination from a a young boy? Yeah, just growing up, I grew up in those fiery Pentecostal environments, you know, and I remember, I remember the faithful women who prayed in my church. Mm-hmm. That was probably what marked me was not the fiery sermons. I can remember a few of those, but my mom used to gather with two or three other women uh, on Wednesday or Thursday mornings, and they would get up there at like 6 a.m. before, and they all worked full yeah. time. They worked 12, 13-hour days after that. And to, sh- and to see my mom and a few women gather and pray fervently at the altar of the church mm-hmm. and um, moments like that where I saw pastors who really sacrificed for the life of their church, where... I saw pastors at the hospital late at night. I saw pastors at funeral homes uh, with uh, hours standing there with grieving families. I saw, I just had grandparents that lived this faith out in times of persecution. And uh, I guess along the way, it's, it's a culmination of probably hundreds of people yeah. that, uh, that were faithful witnesses to all of us. Uh, most of them you would, never, you would never have heard of. They're not famous. Yeah. But they're, I believe they're known in heaven yes. because of their remarkable lives. Yeah, they leave an impress of the, the church's way on you. Thanks for listening to part one of our interview with Pastor Brady on his new book, Remarkable. Be sure to pick it up with us next week.